Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. How are you, Scott? I'm good. Um, We've got a guest today. We do, and I am so excited to introduce Ben in just a moment after we um, recite our three, rehearse, I like to say the word rehearse in the literal sense of the term, our three tenets and get going on this episode. So what's Yeah, I think we need to do it because last time uh, it was a tongue twister for me because it's been a while. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe, maybe this time we can get it right. Okay. So the first tenet. Sacred cows make great barbecue. Delicious, which means that um, we'll scoff at orthodoxy whenever we wish. We're very comfortable with that. And the second is that we will proudly fly our flag. Yeah, thanks for not twisting that up. We'll argue vigorously for our point of view uh, until we don't have it anymore. That's right. (laughs) But finally, and most importantly, we are bros before politicos, which means (laughs) brothers first. Ben's really enjoying this, man. This is, this is yeah. These Brothers the, first and everything else is details. That's right. So we really want to explore our own preferences in the political and faith worlds and how they intersect, but we will always keep our priorities straight. Hey, by the way, just as a teaser and, and to get you thinking about it, Cole, I want to have a conversation about bros before politicos in Philippians. Okay. That's a book in the New Testament, I believe. Um, oh, it, it also is a book in the New Testament. I was just talking about all the people named Philip, but yeah, let's do that instead. <laughs> you always you always one up me. I love it. Okay. Introduce okay. our guest, buddy. Let's get to our guest. We are so excited to have today um, a brand new guest to our program. He's also a brand new faculty member at Abilene Christian University named... Dr. Ben Peterson. Hi, Ben. Hello, Cole. Ben is um, an assistant professor of political science who has lived in Abilene a total of three months now, just two and a half months, really. Yep, two and a half. And uh, when I first met Ben and heard uh, his various academic specialties, I knew that he would be a shoe-in for a guest on this podcast because it was immediately relevant. So I'm going to, we're going to talk about some specific things, but first, Ben, tell us, you know, a little bit about your academic specializations. Sure. Uh, well, thanks, Cole and Scott. I'm really excited to uh, to be on the program. Uh, I'm excited about what you're doing here. Uh, great to hear your, your tenants and everything and uh, to be a part of something like this. So thanks very much, first of all, for, for having me on the show. Um, my specialty is in political theory, so I've done some work on uh, the history of ideas, um, religion and political theory, uh, American political thought, and uh, my dissertation was on Islamic political thought, contemporary Islamic political thought, uh, particularly on thinkers arguing for a kind of liberal conception or democratic conception of the political implications of Islam. Very interesting. So we thought what we would do today is just have Ben read his dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm down for that, man. This sounds interesting. <laughs> Starting with page one. Page no. one. <laughs> Acknowledgements. Uh, there are too many people to thank. <laughs> I like, but I will nevertheless squeeze as many as I can in. <laughs> when, and when I first heard that uh, Ben was coming, I reached out via email and he said, hey, by the way, here is a link to some things I had written. 
And I just started scanning the titles and thinking, wow, he Ben is really putting a lot of mental energy into topics that Scott and I often tread around or dip our toes in. So we need to get him on the podcast. And so that's why Ben is here. We're very glad to have you. And your specialty um, for this episode that I think is so important is your interest and your, your writings that we have linked to our show notes on something called Catholic social teaching. So let me just get you to to start out by telling us what in the world is Catholic social teaching? Sure. Yeah, what is that? What is that? <laughs> uh, well, sure. Thanks. Um, so, uh, you know, you might have heard people are talking about a lot about the CRT, you yeah. know, and so I, I want to, you know, encourage people to think about CST, right? okay. Catholic social teaching. Right. Um, and so, yes, uh, this is uh, Catholic social teaching is kind of an effort or a body of, of thought and uh, writing among of uh, contained in what's called uh, in papal encyclicals. So it's kind of um, circular letters sort of aimed at bishops and uh, church leaders and also generally people of goodwill, uh, mm. especially since 1963 of sort of the church, the Catholic church's attempt to engage um, modernity, you might say, to engage um, important economic and social and political questions with the teaching of the church, in light of the teaching of the church, in light of uh, the belief in a created order, in a divinely created order, in light of uh, the revelation of, of Jesus, and then in light of the uh, the church that has formed around that uh, revelation and in that teaching. Um, and it's an attempt to kind of engage, hey, what should uh, Catholics in particular, but also Christian, you know, Christian believers think and how should we act, you know, about uh, in, in sort of the various realms of social life. Um, it emerged in particular, one of the sort of, there's, there's sort of three touchstone encyclicals that um, kind of express some of the core teachings of, uh, or core elements and themes of CST. The first kind of, um, first one was called Rerum Navarum. By so the the new thing something like that right um, in uh, eighteen or yes eighteen ninety one by Pope Leo the thirteenth he kind of launched the modern tradition there was a there was a revival of interest in the thinking of Thomas Aquinas mm -hmm. and in uh, Thomistic natural law that sort of you know, works its way into this encyclical um, addressing particularly what we might call the social question you know the issues of industrialization. Um, so it, 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 the sort of subtitle for it has to do with the, the rights and duties of capital and labor, right? You can hear the, I can, I can see Cole already, you know, <laughs> uh, just grimacing with the Marxist. His face is red. Yeah. Um, so that's, that was a touchstone sort of the launch is widely thought to have launched kind of the, the modern tradition of Catholic social teaching. Then there is a, um, another touchstone encyclical by Pope Paul the 11th, uh, or no, I'm sorry, Pius the 11th. Quadragesimo Anno, um, and this is sort of a, 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 the subtitle on the reconstruction of social order. Um, mm -hmm. And then, so 40 years after 1931, right? Um, and then 100 years after Rerum Novarum, when Pope John, John Paul II released Centesimus Annus, uh, kind of the 100th, 100th anniversary there, and all kind of refer back to Rerum Novarum as a key 
point. And, um, you know, there's some key, there's some particular elements involved that I can go into if you'd like. Um, but that's just a, a brief snapshot of, you know, what is Catholic social teaching? It's the, it's the distinctively Catholic attempt to engage some uh, questions of modern social, economic, and political life from, uh, in light of the, the teachings of the Catholic Church. So just to clarify, um, the term Catholic social teaching is a 1963 term that was trying to gather the 1891 and the 1931 encyclicals. That, you know, I don't know when the, the term first was, when CST sort of first began, it probably was used in one of the later encyclicals referring back to Rerum Novarum. Okay. But in 1963, the reference I made there was, that was the first time, I think it was Pope John the 23rd. To actually address the teaching not just to bishops and uh, church and clergy to kind of filter through the church's teaching to you know the the laity, but also to all people of goodwill. Hey, this is some things that we think public officials ought to be thinking about. Anyone who's interested in politics, you know, it's addressed to anyone who's a person of goodwill, right? Uh, so Catholic um, Protestant, Catholic Protestant. That's right. And this was the, this was during the time of the around the time of the Second Vatican Council which from 1962 to 1965, in which the, the Catholic Church kind of began to posture to, to position itself much more in that way, right? Hey, we are in some sense um, brothers with other Christian believers. We're not in communion, but we're, you know, we share some, some kind of fraternity with them. We want to be more open to, you know, the, the people who aren't in the church. We can engage with them and reason with them. And so that's what I was referring to in, in the, the 1963. Uh, okay. Yeah, in that in that date. Yeah. Can you so talk to can, us? Let me let me ask one more question of clarification, Scott, before you chime in, please. Which is, I'm gathering from the fact that, well, from some of the things I've read that you've written, that these Catholic encyclicals that were aimed at Catholics and Protestants and people of goodwill, at some point, were were no longer suggestions for good living but started to enter the political realm like suggestions for pleading the state to have laws that do things right so can you say anything about when and how that happened well that's a great point and i i would actually suggest i would actually say it it's not a really an evolution i mean from the beginning of this particular tradition it's you know and in fact i mean the the catholic church even before um, these, this sort of, this body of, of thought that's kind of grouped in with Catholic social teaching, modern Catholic tradition of Catholic social teaching always had, you know, been pretty free on its opinions about, um, th there's a, there's a famous document, I can't remember the exact date, but it's, it's a little bit before Pope Leo Thirteenth, and it's a, a list of errors, right? <laughs> and it's a, a syllabus of errors. It's a great document, you read it. It's about, some of them include things, um, you know, like separation of church and state, you know, mm -hmm. like the, certainly the, I think in the traditional Catholic and some many Catholics today argue this is, you know, proper that the state ought to be the state as the temporal power ought to be subordinate to the church, which is the spiritual power, which is the higher, right. Yeah, which yeah. is the higher uh, end of man, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so the church ought to be sort of um, in some sense uh, in charge of the state and the state ought to, ought to and so, that certainly, I, I don't think that's necessarily a departure that they're actually now finally entering into political affairs. But yes, part of it is partly um, the modern tradition is sort of one way to at least one way to read it would be 
there are a lot of things changing right in the world there's the you know the there the protestant reformation has happened a, lot, a while back you know 100, 100 years of years later but there are increasingly there are calls for liberty calls for separation of church and state there are this movement of democracy right how do we how do we engage and respond to those these these changes of modernity modernity um new ideas like uh liberalism and you know in the sort of classical liberal sense mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. hey what should we think about that there's an appeal of socialism seems to have a growing appeal in the in the late uh, 19th century and it's partly trying i i understand this to, to tradition the modern tradition of cst partly as trying to say let's guide um, our first of all, our believer, you know, believers, Catholic, our Catholic flock, you know, into what should we make of all these things? And yes, to your point, how should we engage politically? Should we be, you know, joining uh, Marxists and trying to call for uh, uh, the proletarian revolution, or is there something different? And and they do say there is something a little bit different. It's not the pure laissez-faire liberalism. That's not the Catholic teaching about how the state ought to act. But it's also not socialism. And there's kind of a middle path, a sense in which it's sort of a middle path uh, that they're trying to lay out for political engagement. A third way. A third way, if you will. If you will. Yeah, it is interesting that I I don't know to what degree, uh, Ben, uh, this is relevant to the Aram Navarum, but I, I do wonder to what degree the church is reconciling its loss of, for lack of better word, power. I mean, you know, the church is not trying to figure out in the same way its role um, bef- before the age of reason. <laughs> it has its role. Right. 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 Um, and I and I wonder to what degree that is a kind of an allegory for what evangelicalism is going through in our time. I don't know. Am I reading too much into that? I mean, it just feels it. Fe- the the sermons that I hear, the prayers that I hear at church are, you know, we need to bring our country back. We've, you know, we've lost our way. It's this kind of, um, uh, some a, a friend of Colin mine has just um, uh, has just launched a book that says it's not a question of whether your churches fold or don't fold. It's a question of how they fold. <laughs> it's a question of how they die. When they, when and how, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it seems to me that there are ways in which evangelicalism is reconciling some of the same questions uh, on this side of the, uh, of the, uh, of the modern age. Well, no, I, I do think that's certainly relevant, certainly relevant. I mean, that you're kind of asking the causal question, why, why does this tradition sort of, what, why do we have this? And um, yeah, I mean, I, I could, I could imagine a, an explanation there of, there's this sense of needing, you know, we don't have the assumed role that we did have. And so let's stake out for ourselves a role. Um, I, I mean, you know, I could maybe offer a, a slightly, I don't know if it's more, maybe more positive or maybe sort of a, a, a different spin with something like, like um, you know, there's a genuine different things we hadn't thought about and that, that now sure. we do need to think, we do need to consider, we need to, in other words, they, there could be a kind of um, opportunity in change as well. And I think that's, of course, how the teachings sort of want to spin it. There's one in particular that reminds that might relate to what you're talking about. It's it's not one of those touchdown encyclicals that I mentioned. It's a declaration that also came out of the um, um, the Second Vatican Council. It's called Dignitatis Humanae in 1965. 
And this is where the Catholic Church, uh, in that declaration, the Pope explicitly says, hey, we are we do support religious freedom. Right. And we and here's our here's the here's what we understand to be sort of like the true grounding for it. It's not in a total, complete sort of individualistic sense of freedom, and, and it's not in a relativistic um, grounding. It's, it's, in fact, human beings have a duty to seek the truth, right? And people of goodwill are going to come to different answers. They may not all come to the answer, which, by the way, we do have the truth. You know, we Catholics, we believe we have the truth. I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of part of the whole idea, right? We've been given... Uh, revelation and then confirmation of that revelation through the tradition and all these things. Um, but so we have an, an alternative grounding, so to speak, for religious freedom, but it's framed as uh, in continuity with the tradition, right? Yeah, you know, we're not changing our stance on on what on, on that we do believe in in uh, absolute truth and that we found it in, in, in the revelation of Christ and all these things. But we are trying to sort of engage with the work with um, uh, the calls for religious freedom that that have become prominent um, and in, in that have been secured in constitutional law in many places in the United United States, uh, for example, uh, John Courtney Murray was an American Jesuit who had a lot of influence in that particular uh, declaration, and so uh, all that just to, to, to seems like that is one particular example of kind of connecting with what you're saying. Is how do we understand ourselves in a world in which yes, the Catholic Church doesn't have the same in many places. Um, still, still the Catholic, I mean, the officials at this point, it's still the official church of like, say Ireland and some other, you know, um, some other countries in Latin America as well. Um, but definitely, I, I think I could, uh, could see some plausibility of the, the explanation you're, you're offering. Oh, goody. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things that I'm, I really, um, appreciated about the, um, the post you did in the new Atlantis um, and this, I understand you wrote last fall, not this fall. That's like, right. This was the first time we were, uh, you know, football was the big question. Are we going to play football amidst COVID as one of the things I referenced? And so, yes, yeah, la- last fall. One of the things I thought was really interesting was kind of there's a thesis that runs through this about uh, dignity as a, as a good we need to consider dignity as a good, not just economics as a good. Can you talk to us a little bit about this? I think you used the word equal worth of dignity or equal worth and dignity, but what, what is that? How does that relate to, to CST and how, how do, how do we understand the role of dignity within that context? Uh, sure. That that's a great question. Uh, the idea, yeah, the idea of human dignity, the idea of, uh, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of human life and human dignity as a kind of, uh, in, as human beings endowed with a particular special kind of dignity and worth, I, I would say stands kind of a, it's sort of the central principle, uh, the, the sort of basic principle of Catholic social teaching. So the, the way I understand the argument is, um, I mean, human beings are uniquely valuable by virtue of their having been created by God and designed for communion with him and with other people, right? For And so in that particular piece, what I would, and, and that, that dignity is equal, right? It's not dependent on um, uh, someone's intelligence or accomplishments or acumen in, in various spheres, you know, that there's a basic level of human dignity 
Um, and again, this, you could think of that as an alternative grounding for some of the, you, you mentioned the age of reason, you know, the idea of the equality of human beings, right? I mean, this is to say, I mean, em empirically, it's, it's, it's really not the case that human beings are equal, right? In most, in most ways. I mean, that, that's not really an empirical claim so much. It's a moral claim, right? That's a human beings have worth by virtue of, you know, in, in maybe the, because they have reason or because they, you know, are differentiable from animals, other animals, something like that. In Catholic social teaching is very much, hey, this is a, this is a basic principle. And in that piece, what I was trying to do is ask the question, given that, and I, I think that uh, Robert George, who's a, a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton University, and he, I think, does a really nice job of making the argument that, you know, a, a decent society is going to be one that all of its institutions respect the equal uh, worth and dignity of each of its members, even if it's human members, right? And so my question was in that piece, I was kind of trying to ask, so what does that mean though, when you literally have to make decisions about scarce resources, including time uh, or energy of, or, or you know, at the time it was discussions about um, potentially having a triage healthcare, right? I mean, we're still having this question now about that. If you're not vaccinated, right, should you, uh, get less priority, you know, for healthcare if you have to go to hospital, right? I mean, it, it, it raises some really uh, tough ethical questions, and in more the more general question of, hey, when we were we were sort of debating shutdowns, right? We were sort of debating, hey, we should shut down, we should slow down economic activity and other forms of social life in order to protect, um, in order to prevent deaths, right? I mean, you know, the more, basically, the more activity we allow, the more free activity when you have a highly transmissible virus, the more, the more risk of death, right? Especially for uh, people with underlying health uh, conditions, especially for older members of society, and etc. And so that was my question, how do you actually balance that? So for instance, you know, that to put it quite starkly and crassly, you know, if it's a choice of on the one hand, we open up and one person dies, right? We, we allow for more activity and one person dies because they catch the virus from somebody versus you, you kind of close down economic activity and uh, 10 people become unemployed, right? I mean, how do you, you know, those both matter, right? To some degree, right? Because you, you have to factor everybody's life into the equation, so to speak. But how do you actually make the decision between those two different kinds of uh, losses or costs that are going to be sustained? And so I tried to think through that a little bit, um, rejecting the the an alternative. What I see as a stark alternative to the the dignitarian principle that I that uh, Robert George I think really nicely articulates. Um, the, the utilitarian approach would rather say, let's try to you know make sure society as a whole kind of benefits the most. Right? Is there a different understanding of the common good if if um, if only you know one person's going to die versus, you know, most people are going to be fine, then we have to sacrifice that individual. You know, that, that's a very quick example. I can't think of a great example, better example right off the top of my head. So I, that was me trying to think through how the dignitarian principle would actually come into play. And I, I think I, you know, who knows how successful I was, but that was, <laughs> that was the goal there. Well, I'm thinking several thoughts. And so I, I'm trying to imagine, and I'm going to, I'm going to continue to ask you, um, versions of the question I asked you a moment ago about um, the decision to enter into the political realm. So I'm trying to think of myself as a thoughtful Catholic in 1891. The Civil War is over. We're having 
thousands and thousands in America, thousands and thousands of immigrants from other nations flock to our shores. Um, we have an expansion of land-grant universities to combine with our, what we now call the Ivy League universities, and an explosion of industrial technology. And so I, I'm standing a hundred years after the quote unquote enlightenment, which I think of 1780s or so. Mm -hmm. I know there's no one ran through the streets with a sign saying, now the enlightenment is, is here. Isn't it great we're enlightened now? <laughs> I know, yes. So I, I'm just, that's, it's been a hundred years and I'm trying to think of myself as a conscientious religious person who says there's so much going on here that it's no longer sufficient for me to walk out of my church with a Bible and my persuasive rhetoric and try to get people to live a better way when they're having a hard time. I now need to also engage the coercion of the state, and that is an appropriate step to take. I'm having a, I'm trying to imagine why that was ever a good decision. Okay, so just what you know, yeah. Why, why use the state as uh, an a coer you know, which is a coercive by nature to further something like the aims of the the kingdom of God or the the sort of the Christian or even vision more of society. Basic, more basic is um, this factory worker over this factory owner over here is working people in ways that I find horrible. If I'm looking around and seeing people operate businesses in ways that I think are not loving to their neighbor, but not where they stretch the threshold of creating harm in ways in ways that the law already addresses, but just ways that I find as a Christian reprehensible for spiritual reasons, um, why should I move from a position of, hey, let me let me talk to you about this. Let me try to persuade you into a position of I'm going to engage the levers of the state to force you to act in a way that I think is more holy. So I think the answer from a sort of CST, I'll give you the answer. What I think the CST sort of approach would okay. how we would respond. Then I'll tell you what I how I, <laughs> I would respond, <laughs> which is somewhat informed by CST, but also just uh, so I'm by the way, I, I should make clear. This might already been clear, but I'm not a Catholic uh, myself, although I've found the CST to be a helpful resource, you know, and uh, something that I, I, I'm really excited for this opportunity because I think it's something Christians ought to consider, you know, of all stripes. So I think CST would, you know, the perspective would be that the state does have a role in securing securing and protecting, you know, based on this idea of human dignity, right? There is a, there's a level of um, treatment that uh, there's a level of need that ought to be met by a just society. So, so the argument would be a, a justice argument, right? That, that there is a certain level of um, opportunity to certainly to exist and to live as a human being that does justify the use of coercive power in something like the last resort, right? In um, not as a first response. There's a there's a principle that is an important one in Catholic social teaching, which is called the principle of subsidiarity. 
And the principle of subsidiarity, I, I think it comes from a Latin term subsidium, something like, uh, I think it actually means something like to sit behind, but it, it refers to the, the state has a, a helping role. It's not the, the, not the main show, right? It's not the first line of defense, not the first thing you go to. Um, but the idea is that a higher order of association should not um, subsume the functions of a lower order or of an individual of, of association where, where possible. Basically, if the individual, what the individual can do for himself, he ought to have the space to do for himself. What the local community can do for itself, it ought to be able to do for itself without incursion from a higher order of association. But there are um, basically there are there are injustices would be the argument that do require the intervention of a of another order of association, the state, for instance. And so, basically, yes, that there there is an argument that the several of the encyclicals sort of. Um, promote the idea that the state, the public authority does have a role to play in securing certain basic conditions, um, basic living conditions to people in regulating uh, business and um, e the economy in the, in the interest of the common good, in the interest of um, everyone. And in particular, there's also a teaching of, you know, uh, there should be a concern, a special, it's called the preferential option for the poor. There should be a, a special concern for the poor and vulnerable, right? Um, so now again, I, I think subsidiarity kind of balance provides some ballast against a sort of totally statist model in which the state is the sole mechanism for delivering goods, let's say, or for ensuring that people are cared for in an appropriate way. Um, so that's at least one one answer that yeah that there the argument is there there is a, a role for the state um, that's uh, based on its its um, its uh, job so to speak its function of guaranteeing justice to the society so it's a justice argument. My own sort of thought would be that role is appropriate. I mean, if you go to like Romans thirteen, right, that the that the state bears the sword, right, and and it is supposed to um, punish punish the wrong or punish the evil, reward the good, you know, and there's um, certainly, I think, an important element of human freedom that can't be, can't be ignored, but there nevertheless is a role for the coercive, you know, um, apparatus that the state provides um, or that the state brings, brings to bear and, and plays some role in regulating activity. Um, we could debate on, you know, what exactly is the, are the limits of those? Certainly not unlimited, I, I would say, but at least at some degree of, of responsibility for regulation. And, and so uh, I'll leave it there. Let me jump in and now. say, yeah. So I just have a few questions. I think Scott may have a list, but let me, because of where, of what you just said, Scott, let me, let me preempt you by saying to me, the Romans 13 passage necessarily provides warrant for the judicial branch. Um, but I, I, I hear the argument of dignity um, to be almost impossible, and I'll tell you why. And Scott and I have talked on the program before about um, some of where I see his fail, his not his failings, but the failings of the worldview that he talks about, which is someone has got to define right. what dignity means, right. and someone has to hold a clipboard and say you are not meeting that, or you are meeting it. And I, in recent times, you hear people 
saying uh, on the left, in order for you to have dignity, you must make what I call a living wage. Right. So when right. you work at Walmart, you're not making a living wage, and that's not dignified enough, in my opinion. So I'll take more tax money from people who earn it and give it, or else I'll shut you down. That's the law they're trying to pass. Or if you don't have free college, you're not living a dignified life. And, and so they're, they are tossing this around like a beach ball in ways I don't think you yourself would. But I'm, I'm pointing out, uh, unless it's defined, it is a word with, with limitless meanings, meanings. And that really bothers me. Sure. No, and I, I, I will concede that I think that's a sort of a challenge, you know, for this, this tradition or for any sort of um, attempt to base you know, to base um, the standards of society institutions on this principle. I suppose I, I don't think just because something is difficult to define, though, that it it can't be, you know, that we could argue about what what is the right, um, what is actually a living wage, right? What is actually, uh, by the way, one of the, uh, so rerum navarum that I mentioned earlier, um, there's kind of two, remember that the third way thing, the third way is, uh, private property is legitimate, you know, like the, that, that, that's one of the principles laid out. And that's, that's a consistent principle that the, the principle uh, of uh, possessing private property, using private right of use is legitimate, but there, there are, the, there are limits there, there, one can, you know, in other words, you can take all the property and not share any of it, right? The, the, there's a, a counterbalancing principle called the universal destination of the earth's goods. Or the, or the common use of goods. And so the earth is made, God made the earth for everybody, right? And so it private property plays a role. Um, but the there's another, there's another element of the a common or a consistent element in throughout the encyclicals of the just wage. And the argument in it's in Quadrigesimo Anno, the, the second kind of touchstone encyclical that yes, the um a, a family wage basically a person a wage ought to be uh sufficient for uh, a single at the time is basically stated as a father. The father ought to be able to, you know, make money, and a mom ought to be able to stay at home, and you ought to be able to have a family. Out. So, I do agree with you in the sense that some of these things are difficult to put a exact number to, or exact, um, you know, how would we how would we delineate a clipboard? How would we write down all these things on a clipboard? Um, I would still say that it may be that they are nevertheless not, you know, you could debate and argue about what what it, what it should be a living way you know and we could probably get to some range of figures for that in abilene texas right we could look at you know what are the prices of it they already do the consumer price index stuff like that right what is a typical basket of goods cost that a typical family the old basket and, of goods are yeah the old basket yeah. of goods yeah argument. and call one of the things that you do when you're when you're making that argument is a you assume that that's that that happens without discourse or representation, which I think is unfair. And number two is, I mean, you're fine and dandy when Rubio wants to talk about dignity of work. That sounds good to you, but not the dignity of uh, not not dignity in other forms, which I think just means that this is that dignity is defined through uh, discourse. What are you shaking your head about? Because you are you are not speaking for me at this moment. I don't have a fig for Mark Rubio when he talks about dignity of work as the warrant for some argument about welfare or not welfare. There should not be welfare. 
no matter how much dignity. Oh, I can, okay. I can totally hear that. So, yeah. So yeah. Liber- I, I receive that. Okay. A libertarian doesn't care what Mark Rubio says. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, honestly, that, that's right. the truth. And right. um, uh, Ben, in, in his one of the articles we linked to in show notes, um, uh, addresses FDR. And I've in my life, I'm not a young man anymore. I've heard lots of people say, oh, my goodness, uh, FDR, what he did so much is restore dignity to people by giving them a job to earn the money that he was printing to give them. So it wasn't just a, a handout, quote unquote, but actually, you know, some people were going and digging holes and others were coming and filling them up or go paint this mural in a post office or whatever. Well, uh, if you ask 100 economists who are, are in my camp anyway, um, it, I don't think it's any more decided that FDR's programs got us out of the depression. In fact, they prolonged the depression. 100% of FDR's programs failed. And we're watching the failure of Social Security as well and many other things. Um, and that's if, if we want to argue about that on a different program, we can because I'm ready. But uh, his social programs were failures, but people say, even in my lifetime, oh my goodness, my great uncle, my, my grandpa was so glad to go to work each day. And I would add it and not say this to my friend, except I would say, that's nice. Thank you. I would say yes and get money that prolonged the depression for everyone. I mean, it was, it was a terrible idea, but the warrant for the argument was dignity. And I think that is not an appropriate warrant for coercion. I do think it's an appropriate warrant for Christian behavior that is voluntary. If you want to start talking about what can I do in my charitable work uh, to, to promote dignity. I remember Tony Campolo and one of his, uh, one of his, recorded sermons said, you know what people do? I love Tony Campolo. He said, people go and they get groceries for people and they knock on the door and make them come out and they sing Kumbaya and everyone. And it's so humiliating for the people who need groceries. He said, what we should do is go buy groceries, put them on the step and get in our car and leave and call them on the phone and say, there's food on your front porch. It's for you. This is God and hang up. And so he he had very strong feelings as a sociologist and as a Christian about dignity. So I don't think dignity is an invalid concept. I'm saying trying to enforce social coercion via a warrant of dignity, I think, is just about impossible. Well, let me add one, if I can, yes, one, one thing that you made me think of there. I think the implications of the idea of dignity as an important principle of, you know, political social life are more clear in some spheres than in others. So for instance, for instance, um, there are certain things based on the principle of, of human dignity, the, the sanctity of human life that according to CST would be intrinsic evils, right? It'd be intrinsic to, it'd be intrinsically evil to, uh, murder someone to, uh, according to CST to commit an abort, to have an abortion, right. Or to, uh, participate in euthanasia. Uh, there, there's a the, the encyclical where this is laid out is um, uh, probably many places, but John Paul II's Evangelium Vitae uh, is is one of the examples of that, or where he really makes that argument for a kind of culture of life kind of argument. I think gospel of life is what that encyclical means. So there are certain certain way uh, spheres 
that uh, that sort of teaching has obvious implications. But I agree with you that it it may not have such obvious implications in, for instance, the economic realm. Maybe much more of a need for uh, the application of prudence, right? And sort of how does it actually apply? So, and and I do. That's actually one of the in the piece, the public discourse piece uh, that I wrote last year. I do I do think that is one of the sort of you might say dangers of CSD. So I've been I've been championing it, right? And I will. I think people we should take it seriously. But there are dangers with it. Is that you you have your program that you want to do your political program, and then you attach something from CST to it. And, you know, then you're, you're off to the races, right? See, CST says this is what I should do or, or a Christian political thought. You know, we could, we could imagine, I mean, you can imagine the Bible says, right? So, right. so that would never happen, right? That no settles it, man. Bible. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so there does have to be some there, but I think there is some room for that. So for instance, when I said um, the encyclical that talks about having the, uh, the just wage, you know, or, or multiple, there is also sort of a recognition of you have to factor the conditions in. Um, that, hey, if, if that, if, if uh, establishing a certain wage by law and mandating it is going to lead to more unemployment, then that's something that you ought to factor in, right? I mean, that, that's something you wouldn't, that would be part of the role of prudence of how do we, how do we determine that? Um, so that's just one thing I wanted to suggest that there are some spheres where the principle might much more clearly operate and much more clearly rule out certain courses of action um, that clearly violate human dignity or the, the, the basic right to life, for example. And then others where I agree that, that it might not be so clear. Now, I, I suppose where we're different, you know, is it still a valuable principle to consider or, or is it so liable to abuse that it will be always sort of, a, you know, stretched to, to contain whatever political program we happen to, to be championing? I, th- I think is a good question. Uh, I think the, the other thing that I would see as a kind of a downside to this to to thinking about uh, people having a right to dignity is that when that gets interpreted through solipsism, uh, that's not really helpful, and it doesn't it doesn't become a useful dialogue. I mean, it's not a dialogue; it's it's individually interpreted. So, in other words, well, uh, you said everyone should have dignity. I you're not giving me any dignity, so I'm uh, I'm upset. Right. Um, and you know, I, I think when, when we become increasingly comfortable with those things being interpreted, uh, collectively, and I mean that in a constructivist sense, that's not, that's not as, that's not as icky to me. I think one of the things that, that frustrates me about this entire conversation is how so many times this gets boiled down to, uh, in in our culture, it gets boiled down to some individualistic experience, and that that individualist individualist experience um, has equal weight with the collective argument. <laughs> yes, but the collective argument is defined in different ways. That that's what I'm saying. There is no such thing as a collective argument. There are different people's articulations of the collective argument. See what I mean? Which is a good reason to have a guy with a clipboard. <laughs> <laughs> ah, ah.